Our scripture reading today is from Luke 4, 14 through 30, and this is found on page 859 of your pew Bible. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that one in your hands home as a gift from us. We would love for you to have the word of the Lord in your home. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all of the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do at Capernaum do here in our hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. So glad that you're here with us this morning. And as we turn our attention to looking at this passage of scripture that Kristen just read for us, I'd love to pray and ask for God's help uh, for all of us to be able to uh, understand and apply uh, what Jesus is saying and teaching here to our lives. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, that you've recorded and preserved your word for us. And I pray now that you would speak afresh and clearly into each one of our lives from this passage this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit who is here with us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin this, uh, this morning's message with a question, and that is, uh, have any of you ever wanted to murder me after a sermon? I don't know. Well, maybe don't show hands. I'd probably rather not know if you, if you had. But uh, I know in the course of a Sunday morning, I've probably bored every single one of you at some point in the sermon. And if this is your first Sunday, don't, don't worry. You're, you're, I'm sure your time will come maybe even later on in this message. Maybe you're already there now. Uh, I'm sure at times I've made you uncomfortable uh, in a sermon or said something that you disagreed with. But I, so far, at least, I haven't gotten any death threats after a sermon that, that someone's actually communicated to me. Um, but Jesus, here in this passage, after the first sermon that's recorded in Luke, uh, people don't just hear it and want to kill him, they actually try to kill him here in this episode. 
And, and again, this is not just a random group of people either. This is the hometown crowd. Jesus is in Nazareth where he grew up, and his hometown is small. Jesus probably knew every single one of these people well. I mean, the best archaeological evidence we have says at this point in time, Nazareth was probably a village of 500 people. I mean, that's Roughly how many people come to church on a Sunday morning at the Brookside campus. This is not a big town. These are Jesus' friends and neighbors, his classmates and customers, and they turn on him like that. I mean, can you imagine? It's like, well, what if all of a sudden Arrowhead just turned against Patrick Mahomes? So if we're studying the Gospel of Luke here, and, and just as a reminder, the, the Gospel of Luke is a, is a sort of a theological biography of the life of Jesus, where Luke is trying to pull together eyewitness accounts to, to show us who Jesus was and to convince us that he was indeed uh, the true king, is indeed the true king of the world, and that we should put our faith and hope and trust in him and in this series, we're trying to look at the gospel. We can rediscover Jesus. And what we rediscover about him in this passage is actually that Jesus is easy, probably easier than we think to hate. Jesus is easy to hate and hard to truly love. I think many of us tend to want to view Jesus as, as safe, as tame, as cuddly. But if Jesus has never made you angry, if he's never confronted you with a hard truth about yourself that, that made you consider, I, maybe I just need to walk away from this or from him, then there's a good chance that you haven't actually taken him that seriously. So what happens here? What is it about Jesus' message, his mission, his person that makes him so easy to hate and hard to truly love. That's what we want to rediscover this morning. So first we want to just take a closer look at what happens in this episode in the Gospel of Luke. And then after we've done that and unpacked it a little bit, then take a moment and say, okay, how does this reflect on this? What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us today? So Luke has moved us from the stories, again, if you're just kind of coming into the series in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has moved us from the stories of Jesus' birth and the first couple of chapters of Luke, which is, you know, that's where the Christmas story, Jesus being born, all of that, the shepherds. And now he's taken us to the point of John the Baptist has introduced him. John is Jesus' cousin, and he's been given this special role, assignment of preparing the way, preparing people to come and to meet Jesus. Jesus was baptized by John on the Jordan River. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasts. He's tempted by the evil one during that time, and he walks away victorious. Where everyone else, Adam and Eve, the Israelites, you and me, where we have given in to temptation and failed, Jesus resisted and stayed strong in the power of the Spirit, dependence on God's Word. And then after that, Luke then sets up this scene. He makes a turn in his gospel. He's positioned Jesus to us as God's Son, the promised Messiah, but now he's starting to show us how people encounter and react to Jesus. And he introduces this section by telling us what Jesus has been doing. Verse 14 and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So he, he returned from the wilderness. And notice he says, in the power of the Spirit. Luke in particular highlights the unique role of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life and in the life of the church in Acts. So just look for that as we go through. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. 
And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So generally, Jesus has been going around uh, the area of the Sea of Galilee, which is a, a large lake in the region. I've got a, yeah, kind of a map of it here. You sort of see there's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been going around to these different villages, towns, going to the synagogues and teaching. And, and people are, are just blown away by, by who he is and his ability to communicate and what he's teaching. Luke tells us he's been doing this. Now, I want to just pause here, too, because I think sometimes this language of synagogue is something we just hear if we're familiar with the Bible, or if you're not familiar with the Bible, I think, what in the world is a, is a synagogue? So for the synagogue, for Jewish people who lived outside of Jerusalem, which that was the sort of the center of life for um, the Jewish people where the temple was, but if you lived outside of Jerusalem, you would make a trip to Jerusalem for special festivals and events, but otherwise you would worship at a synagogue. It was a place that was built where people would gather weekly for rest and worship and prayer and to hear the scriptures taught. And so Jesus is going around to those synagogues, those places of worship in the area, uh, and, he, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. Now, again, another thing we've said in this series in the Gospel of Luke, we don't just want to uh, learn from Jesus' teachings, but we also want to observe his life, his, his way of life. How is he living? And learn from him in that way as well. And one of the things to note here is just Jesus' regular practice of taking a day of rest and Sabbath and being with God's people to enjoy the scriptures and that community. It's a part of his regular practice. In fact, when Luke introduces us to the scene in Nazareth, he even calls it Jesus' custom. This is part of Jesus' regular habit of life, is to stop on the Sabbath and to go to a place of worship, a day of rest and worship. Now, I imagine that the people in Nazareth have been eagerly anticipating this moment because they have been hearing about what's been happening around the surrounding area. And, and Jesus grew up there in Nazareth, and he had a small business there in Nazareth. But one day, right, he goes off. Uh, he's lived there for about 30 years. He goes and he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then it's like he doesn't, he doesn't come back home. He starts going around and doing all this other stuff. And they start hearing reports of miracles being done, water being turned into wine in a neighboring village. And, and people can't stop talking about these teachings and Jesus' messages, his sermons. And I'm sure all the people in Nazareth are wondering, when's Jesus going to come back here and teach? and maybe do a miracle in his hometown. Don't, don't forget where you came from, Jesus. And then the day came when he goes back to Nazareth. So look at verse 16. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, again, this is his regular habit, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus reads this text and he, and he hands the scroll back and he sits down, uh, which was the posture for teaching, right? So when I'm up here, I don't have a, a chair, uh, I'm standing. But in the synagogue context, you would stand to read the scriptures, but then you, the, the person who was going to be teaching or explaining the text, they would sit down. And so verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Jesus starts to explain this promise from Isaiah, this, this one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And, he, and Jesus is saying, this promise, this prophecy is about me. It is being fulfilled in your hearing right now. This is happening. Everything that Isaiah promises here, Jesus does in the rest of the, the gospel. He, he's beginning to heal people. He's beginning to set people free from the oppression of evil spirits. He is bringing about liberation, good news to the poor. It's what Jesus is doing in the rest of the gospel. Luke positions this here to show us this is what I'm going to show you in the rest of the gospel, that Jesus is doing these things, that he is indeed fulfilling this mission and he says to that crowd, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the Messiah, the anointed one. God promises then this is happening right now today in me. I'm going to bring God's kingdom, God's reign back into a broken world. Everything that God has been promising us all the way back from the very beginning, what I saw, Isaiah saw with his eyes, this is happening today, right now. That's what Jesus is saying to this crowd. And the people are stunned and they're amazed at what Jesus said and how impressive his communication skills are. He can hold a crowd's attention like no one else. And sometimes we don't think about Jesus in this way, but Jesus was the most brilliant human being who ever lived. He's also the most compelling teacher. People are enthralled with his words. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious word. They were amazed at the words coming from his mouth. But then all of a sudden, it's almost like a spell is broken. People were in rapture with Jesus, and then it's like the spell is broken in the room, and, and someone, I don't know who it was, we'll just call him Captain, Captain Obvious. <laughs> he just stands up and says, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? And, and didn't he make us that table over there? You know what, I, and I never liked that table over there. We know you, Jesus. Who do you think you are? You're going to bring this kingdom? No way. So Jesus stops and says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And, and what you have heard, what we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. That's verse 23. And Jesus is diagnosing the problem. He's saying, I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jesus, stop talking. You're saying some pretty grandiose stuff right now. And before we continue to listen to you, you need to make sure you're in your right mind and may, maybe do a miracle or two to prove it, Jesus. Show us this is who you really are. Jesus is starting to call them out in this moment, and they're getting angry, but Jesus doesn't stop. And we'll spend a bit more time on this later on, but I just try to summarize here. He goes to these two Old Testament examples and basically says, you know what? You know what you are like this morning, Nazareth? You are just like the Israelites back in the days of Elijah and Elisha. And those were two prophets from the Old Testament books of Kings and so remember when Israel wouldn't listen to, the, listen to those prophets and, and so God sent them to perform miracles and signs, but, but not to Israel, but to a Gentile widow and an unclean Syrian general? Maybe I should do the same thing because you have no faith at all. And that's it. In that moment, the crowd is done. See, that's when you turn to, to, to verse 28, and Jesus says, when, or Luke records this, says, when they heard these things, when the crowd heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They're angry. And they rose up and they drove him, they drove Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. So they, what they want to do, they push and shove Jesus out of the building to the edge of this precipice where they want to shove him over the edge and then throw rocks at him until he 
dies. This is actually a, a picture here uh, in modern day Nazareth where this is seen was traditionally is kind of thought to, to have happened. We don't know for sure if that's the case, but this, you can see that would be a good kind of hill for that um, kind of thing to happen. And then suddenly you get verse 30. But passing through their midst, Jesus went away. And Luke doesn't explain to us in that moment the mechanics of how Jesus simply walks away from this murderous crowd, but he does. And in a way, in this moment, Nazareth gets the miracle that they were so desperate for, and it's Jesus walking away from them and leaving them behind. And that's where the story ends. That's where this account ends. And what's sobering about the story is that it shows that there is a way, it is possible to look at the Son of God, to look in his eyes and to hear him speak and then to burn with rage, to be outraged by him. That it's possible to hear the good news preached, the year of the Lord's favor proclaimed, and to hate the one who says it enough to want to kill him. And you can look at this encounter as we rediscover Jesus together and think, you know, gosh, I, I, that's where I'm, I, I, I would never do that. But that's what we would have said about everyone in the synagogue, they, they, the synagogue that day. They would never do that, right? They're on Jesus' side. He's from their town. They are Jews waiting for the promised Messiah to come. They'd never do that, but they did. And we can too. We can learn to hate Jesus. Many have done so and, and, and do so today. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I want us to see three sort of things we need to be aware of, three traps that this crowd at the synagogue that day falls into that, that we have to avoid. Three traps. The first is this, that we can love the idea of Jesus and hate the real Jesus. We can love the idea of Jesus, but end up hating the real Jesus. And that's what happens at Nazareth. They love the idea of the Messiah. They've been longing for the Messiah. They love the message of the Messiah. But when the real Jesus actually shows up and is there in front of them, the promised one, saying this is being fulfilled right now, they hate it. It reminds me a little bit of when Rachel and I were first married. I don't know, we were married maybe a year, a year and a half. I can't remember exactly how long, but um, we decided we wanted to get a dog. I mean, it was kind of on a whim, and we loved the idea of a dog. Both of us had grown up with dogs. We loved the idea of a dog, and we, one night we were in the Crossroads uh, Art District for First Friday, and they had this, like, dis this animal shelter had a display there with different dogs that, that needed adopting, and we just kind of fell in love with this dog. And the next day we go and pick it up, and we're all excited about it, like literally right up into the moment that we walk in our house with this dog. And we both at this moment like, what have we done? This dog was supposed to like cats. It's chasing our cats, trying to kill our cats. It's like we loved the idea of the dog, but we hated the reality of it. You know, when that dog didn't last with us for very, for very long. Um, we, it's so easy to love the idea. I'm sure many of you have had this with pets. It's so easy to love the idea of that. And then you actually find yourself hating the reality of it. And, and that's what's happening in Nazareth. And it's what can happen to us. We like the idea of Jesus' kingdom coming, the, the people getting healed, forgiveness, captives set free, love, patience, Jesus making all the sad things come untrue. We love the idea of that kind of a kingdom coming. But Jesus isn't just saying the world needs a new kingdom 
he's claiming to be the new king, the true king. He isn't just saying, you know, there's a few poor, imprisoned, blind, oppressed folks out there who I'd like to heal. Wouldn't that be nice? He's actually saying that every single person who's ever lived is poor, imprisoned, blind, oppressed, rebellious, in need of healing. And that I'm the only one who can bring that. And that everyone needs it. You see, we may want Jesus' kingdom, but we don't want him to be king. Because we want to be in charge of our lives. We don't, we don't want to put ourselves under the rule of another king. And we don't want to admit that we need a rescue, we need a savior, we need a king to come get us, that we're actually the ones who are poor and oppressed, that we are so messed up that we need to repent, that, that I need to be forgiven, that I myself am at the heart of so much of the pain in my own life and the lives of those I love and, and even in the lives of those that I've never met. We want Jesus' gifts, his blessings, his benefits. We just don't want to be accountable to him for our choices, our lifestyle, our spending, our sexuality, our schedule. Friends, it's really easy to want Jesus' kingdom. It's really hard to give your allegiance, your trust, your obedience, your love, and your life to him as king. It's possible to hear the good news and hate the one that the news is about. That's the first trap. Uh, the second trap is this, that we can be amazed by Jesus without being mastered by Jesus. We can be amazed by Jesus without being mastered by him. This is what, this is what I mean by that. The people in Nazareth, they're impressed with Jesus' words. They, they marvel, they're amazed at him, and they want to be more amazed by him. They said, Jesus, they do, do miracles here like you've done elsewhere. They want to be amazed by Jesus, but they don't want to have him as their master. They're like, this is the kid we grew up down the street. We're not going to have him tell us what to do. We're not going to learn from him as a rabbi. After all, he's Joseph's son, so they think. So for example, you know, I think about my, my personal finances throughout my life, and, and there's been times where through poor planning or just even just irresponsibility that I've ended up running a credit card balance, right? In those moments, it's like, I pray, God, would you just provide some extra money so they can get out of this hole? Would it just, would it just pop up and appear? Like, just this once, to just, I know, whatever, I didn't, but would you just, could you just provide this one time for that? God, provide me rescue. Amazing. Amaze me with this provision. And you know what? Actually, many times in our lives, he has shown up and just provided in ways that we would have never expected and but I find myself in those moments saying, God, would you just do this miracle for me? But then after the fact, whether or not he provides or not, then it's like, but I don't really want to do the hard work of learning from you as my master of how to manage my money wisely, sacrifice my need to have now impulse, to learn self-control, delay gratification, all that. I, I'd rather just have, be amazed by a miracle, not necessarily learn a pattern of life from Jesus. I want a magician, not a master. But Jesus won't be your magician. See, he's come to set you free, yes, from your sin, from death, from all of it, but he's not liberated you to go back into slavery, the things that got you so messed up in the first place. Uh, he set you free so that you can live life in his design, under his tutelage, and with him as your teacher, your guide, your master. So he says in Matthew, to take his yoke upon you, to learn from him how to do life well. 
So ask yourself, do I want Jesus? All that he is, the things that I like, the things that I don't like, and all of his mystery and holiness, do I want Jesus or do I just want stuff from Jesus? And listen, if you only go to him for stuff, even if it's legitimate stuff, right? I mean, there's lots of really good things. Jesus says, bring your requests, bring your needs. But if we only go to him with stuff, wanting stuff, there's a good chance you'll end up hating him. If you just want a magician and not a master, you might end up killing him. So, so trap one is this idea of, of liking the idea but hating the reality. Trap two is, is wanting to be amazed but not mastered. And then third, and this is the final trap, but we want the love of Jesus as long as it's not for everyone. We can want the love of Jesus as long as it's not for everyone because the crowd turns on Jesus before this. They're upset with him. But you know, the, the moment when the crowd really gets angry here, what pushes them to want to murder Jesus is who he loves, the broadness of his mission. When Jesus points out that God's plan includes from the very beginning people outside Jewish orthodoxy, like the widow of Zarephath, like Naaman the Syrian general, and those people at times have actually shown more faith and been more responsive to God and his message than God's chosen people, that's the moment when they become enraged. That's the moment that they say, we're, we're shoving him off of the cliff. Kenneth Bailey, uh, who is a, an amazing scholar and kind of the Middle Eastern understanding of Jesus and the Gospels, he wrote a fantastic book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He explains the outrage of Jesus' listeners in this way. He says, to the congregation in the synagogue, Jesus was saying, if you want to receive the benefits of the golden age of the Messiah, you must imitate the faith of these Gentiles. I'm not merely asking you to tolerate or accept them. You must see such Gentiles as your spiritual superiors and acknowledge that they can instruct you in the nature of authentic faith. That is the sort of the impact of what Jesus is saying to these crowd when he goes to those examples from the Old Testament. And now we're getting a sense why they want to murder Jesus, because the Gentiles in the Old Testament were the ones who were oppressing them. And even now it's the Gentile Romans who are oppressing them in their country right now. The Messiah is supposed to come and liberate them from the Gentiles, not hold them up as models of faith that they should learn from and that Jesus loves and longs to have included in his family. And there's a show out there called The Man in the High Castle. I haven't watched much of it, just a few episodes. But, but the plot is basically that what if the United States, what if the Allies had lost World War II? And so the setting is the United States under full Nazi occupation. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I say to you that that's how it would feel to a Jew living under Roman occupation. How we, how we would feel about a Nazi government running your life, taxing your money, patrolling your seats. That's how the Jews felt about the Gentiles, the Romans at the time of Jesus. Now imagine then Jesus enters into that alternate historical reality and says to you, you know this message of Isaiah 61, this good news to the poor, this healing of the blind, all the setting captives free, giving sight, all of that. It's for them too. It's for everyone I want everyone to come to repentance, to faith, to, to have trust in me. It's for, every, it's for them too. 
how would you respond? Jesus, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand, you don't get it, you don't know what they believe, you don't know what they do, they, they have no place with us. And perhaps the easiest way to hate Jesus is to fully understand who he loves. He loves everyone. He longs for everyone to join his family. Again, for everyone to to come to a place of faith and trust in him to join his family. And I think our culture is so adamant that we don't hate anyone, that we hide our hatred behind nice words like disagreement or dislike or distrust or something tame like that. But I think we all know deep down there is someone or some group of people that we really, really, really don't want to love. So take a look at this series of pictures. It's just going to be on the screen for a few moments each. And what do you feel when you see them? How easy is it for you to envision the people in these images as brothers and sisters as Christ, as people that Jesus longs to have in his family? I wonder what you felt looking at those images. Jesus loves every single person in those pictures and died so that they could have the possibility of life with him. Do we treat, do we speak, do we think of them in that way? Now, now don't misunderstand me. Jesus' love doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable, especially those in authority, for things that they've done wrong. I just want us to feel here that we are naturally drawn to some people and that there are others who make us deeply uncomfortable, to say the least. So here's the only point I'm making with that, that there is someone out there that Jesus loves that you and I really wish he didn't and that that might tempt you to hate him. And that's what happened with this crowd. And they ended up hating him right up into the crucifixion. In many ways, this is a foreshadowing, right? This chapter of what is, how the story of Jesus' life is going to end. Friends, Jesus is easier to hate than we think. And my fear this morning, for me, for all of us, is that we're going to hear all of this, that we're going to walk through the gospel of Luke together, that we're going to try to encounter Jesus in fresh ways, that we're going to see who he really is, that we're going to sweep away kind of the caricatures and the preconceived notions uh, Jesus made in our image. We're going to encounter the real Jesus, and we're going to let him pass through our midst. And he's going to walk right through, and we will push him away. But let, I, my, my prayer for myself and for us is that that's not what happens. Instead, let's, let's listen to him no matter how hard it is to hear what he has to say. Now, let's stop just trying to be amazed by him and actually begin to learn from him, take him as our master to, to learn how to live life as he designed it and to love who he loves and to join him in that mission of redemption for all people. And if we do, if we come to Jesus in that way, I love how the Gospel of John in the first chapter sums it up, that Jesus came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. May that be true of each and every one of us. Would we receive him? And would we become his children, his adopted sons and daughters? And would we have the same posture that Jesus had of going to every single person, proclaiming the good news of the hope that is found in him alone? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have loved us enough to include even hard stories like this one in the Gospels. And I pray that you would illumine those places in my life, in my heart, my thinking, where I don't really actually want Jesus. I don't want to obey him. I don't want to follow after him. Would you do that for each and every one of us? And would you help us afresh, maybe even for the first time, this morning to put our faith and trust in him and to commit to him, to follow him wherever he leads even to places of really difficult and hard love. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who empowers us to be able to do what we could never do on our own and in our own strength. Amen.